Hello and welcome to What We've Learned. Again, it's Steve and Shane back with Series 3 and back with more pioneers and leaders. Well, indeed, just one guest who covers both of those bases pretty well. Shane, how are you? I'm really well, thank you very much. Good to hear, good to hear. And uh, we have quite an exceptional guest this week. Tell us about Mr Ian Lovett, if you will, Shane. So Ian's a man who describes himself as a data evangelist, and I can't think of a better title, really. Until recently, Ian was chairman of Blue Venn, um, recently sold out, founded the business, I think over 26 years ago, as Blue Sheep, very well known um, as really a pioneer within the data industry. Yes, indeed. Very well known for good reason as well, as you said, not just what he's done with Blue Ven, Blue Sheep over the years, uh, as he talks about, but also the other areas that he's passionate about, his teaching uh, and all many other things that he's put into the industry. So a really fascinating guy. He's a very eloquent explanation on where he comes from, what he does and, and what that might mean for others. So a true leader and pioneer who's very willing to share his thoughts with us. So let's hear from Ian. Well, welcome, Ian. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to you today. And uh, I know you've described yourself as a man who's not um, shy of sharing his opinions, and I hope you've got lots for, to share with us today. Uh, I hope so, too. So uh, one of the things I think would be really interesting, this series is all about uh, leaders and pioneers. And, and the reason I was really keen to have you as a guest is because I do see you as a pioneer in our industry, which back in the day when I think you and I joined or started, it was, you know, direct marketing industry mm. and it's gone on. Um, what, what led you into this industry? How did you end up in it? By mistake, probably. Um, uh, what led into it? Redundancy. So I was made redundant from a job. I, I had a job in a, a, a creative sales promotion agency. Um, as is as happens in those industries, you have a big client. The big client leaves, and whole teams disappear. And that was my fate. Um, and I had a few little clients that I was talking to, and I, I happened to talk to one who was. Uh, involved in trying to generate sales leads for the sales team using direct mail. And I said, well, I could do that for you. Um, and I had interviews with um, chapter one in the day. Um, and I was looking at what they were doing and thought I could do better than that. So I decided to go for my, work for myself. And my father-in-law had worked for himself. He'd found himself in New Zealand with no, no job. So he said, well, just go and do it. And you'll find what you're good at by doing it. And that's why I started, uh, purely by accident. A client wanted something. I had some skill sets that I thought in there, and they were prepared to take a gamble on me. And I was too naive uh, to really think whether there was any money to be made. And I just dived straight in. So how old were you then, Ian? 28. And I was six weeks away from getting married. Wow. Yeah, so nothing nothing focuses I... the brain then, Ian, I guess, in terms of the necessity. But it, it's, it, it sounds, I mean, life can often be sliding doors, right? Pivotal moments, as, as you mm. say, that an opportunity arises. But th there's more than that, of course. And it was it 
a passion as well? Was it something that you didn't think I could do this better, but I feel passionate about wanting to spend my time doing it versus I've got this imperative of equal getting married. I need to make a, a mon- make money and an income. It, this will do. I, I, I always wanted to work for myself since I was a young boy. I don't know where that came from. Well, I, I, actually, I do. If I thought back long and hard about it, um, I had a desire to work for myself. I didn't want to work for other people. Uh, and playing a business game at school and back in the early 70s, that was really you know, a, a simple game. But playing business games at school made me develop or gave me a passion for working in business and working for myself. And I went to university and did a business studies degree. I joined a multinational as part of the graduate training program, was earmarked as being a a successor to a variety of people in there, but I wanted to work for myself. And as soon as the opportunity came along, the phone does ring. (laughs) <laughs> the phone um, does ring. The opportunities are still there for you, obviously, Ian. The phone are. is still ringing, which is fantastic. <laughs> but you seize that opportunity. And I think that that – I love the fact you said, you know, and I, I look back, some of the opportunities came my way and that naivety that both of that passion um, and naivety allowed you to perhaps – you know, do something which maybe the older and wiser you get, you look back and think, my goodness. I mean, if you're looking back and sort of really? talking to your 28-year-old self, what, what would be the advice that you would give now, apart from obviously go do it because you made the right decision, but mm. what, what other things would you have told you, yourself then? To continue to believe in yourself. Um, over... over my life, what I've been staggered at is people's imposter syndrome, uh, lack of self-belief holds them back. They they are afraid to do something because they might get laughed at or they might fall flat on their face and they fail to grasp opportunities that come their way because there is this uh, general fear in the human of failure. And I would just take even bigger risks than I took first time round. Um, so my 28-year-old self would be, I would be telling him that it'll be all right. Believe in yourself and take bigger risks. Um, and Ian, to, to that point, I mean, you, you, the article we were talking about just before we started recording that you wrote a number of years ago for campaigns, mm. your kind of secrets to success were follow your heart, which you just said, and believe and achieve. Mm. Mm. Um, do you believe everybody can do that? You, you, know, you clearly, as we'll come on to, your entrepreneurial spirit and expertise is clear. But do you think everybody's got that within them? It's just unlocking it versus mm, actually only some can achieve those certain uh, certain goals because of their makeup or, or whatever else it may be. That's a fantastic question. My instinct is everybody has something inside them that will enable and push them to a greater level of achievement that they never knew existed within them. And I've been reading The Salt Path by uh, Ray Nguyen. I've read it a couple of times. 
And there is somebody who lost everything and found themselves with nothing, walking the coastal path down in the southwest, rain, heat waves, no food, no money, and get to the other end and life is transformed for them. Um, and their mental attitude is transformed, that they believe they can do some things. And because you believe, you see opportunities. You, your, your vision, your, your uh, outlook on life is more positive if you believe. If you only see negative, and you feel negative, you only see negative, is what I'm saying. And if you feel positive, you see positive, you see opportunities. It's that opportunity cost that exists in our mindset. If we believe we'll fail, we'll fail. If we believe we'll succeed, we can succeed. It's not that we will all succeed, because that's too simplistic. So I do believe that everybody has something inside them. But it's your risk appetite. And I, I think that's really interesting, that, that point about risk appetite and fear and fear of failure. It's sort of like, you know, do you see that door half open and you're encouraged to push on it? Or do you see a, a door half closed that you don't feel mm. confident enough to go through? And I, I agree with you, The Salt Path is an inspiring book for, for many mm. reasons. But, yeah. you know, just sort of reflecting, and I know one of the, the roles that you've had and you've been very passionate about is passing on some of this as visiting professor at um, the University of the West of England. In, in your sort of your groups of business students that you go in and chat to, do you, do you feel with, if you like, next gen, whatever we want to say, but those coming in, those business people of tomorrow, that there's more willingness to take risks? There's more appetite for to be an entrepreneur than there was perhaps back when you and I were starting out? I think so. Uh, everybody wants to be a social influencer and there's nothing easier to do than being a social influencer apart to be a successful one. There's obviously a lot of chemistry that you have to put together, but you can start very, very easily. And they want to be successful. They see people being successful. The Kardashians and, I mean, so people, have some role models to follow um, and I think youngsters are prepared to take those risks but I also see um, youngsters with low self-esteem created by an education system which squeezes them through a sausage machine um, and grades them to an inch of their life so they're always comparing themselves to others so they don't look within at the strength that they have within them. And I'm more passionate about apprenticeships and getting young people into positive environments where they're allowed to take risks, where somebody will nurture them. Um, uh, and some of the best people that we ever had at Blue Sheep, Blue Van, if, if we looked at Blue Van and tried to identify key people in key places, they all started work with us at a young age. So Sean Tapped, in charge of all client relationships, was a 22-year-old who thought he was a failure and left and came back. And fantastic at, uh, account director managing a portfolio of customers. Um, Kev Smith, a young 18-year-old who really struggled, but we put him into university, got him through that. He's been 22 years now. And he's head of all uh, builds of technology for all clients, all databases. 
uh, Mark Jameson, a young 26-year-old computer scientist, you know, in charge of all IT. Um, you know, they, young people, given a chance, will shine through. It's giving them a chance and allowing them to fail. And when they have failed, not making them feel bad about it. If they do fail and it's not for them, that's fine. Move on. And I'll give you, a, you know, a glowing reference because you've got to find your place in life. 25 Jobs by the Time You're 25 was a fantastic book and all youngsters should read it. Try different things. Find out what ignites something in you, which is, which is what happened to me. And it, it just happened to be working for myself. And data was just something, if, if you get back to why I ended up in data, is because other people found it difficult to do. And therefore, well, it can't be that difficult. And just naively jumping in and solving problems. And you being know, good at it. You know, I wonder whether just, I was going to ask you a question back to your, you know, that believe in yourself. Um, and you mentioned mm -hmm. ju just as we were starting, or you were starting out that I think it was your father-in-law you said that gave you that go for it do, do, yeah. what I was going to ask and you've almost I think answered it but I'd be interested to talk more about it is where does a where does some you know from a leadership point of view where does that father-in-law in that case or managing director or CEO in your case play yeah. a part of if somebody wants to follow their dream helping being that nudge agent that says a word like your, your father-in-law might have done uh, or gives them that that safety net or that confidence that they might not they might know what their dream is or what their their talent is it's just having somebody alongside them to make sure that it's nurtured and it's you know that that one phrase of go for it ian is there for everybody is that an important part of modern leadership and management that those people are recognizing these these paths that people could take and, and setting them off down that route i agree um you know it, it is it is a uh, description that people have is, you know, the, the ladder of success. Well, life is not a straight ladder. Life is more, you know, snakes and ladders. You know, you can slide down a few snakes, it's ladders to climb, but it's jungle gym. You move sideways, you move up, you might move back down again, but it's finding the bits inside you or, or not being afraid to fail because failure isn't you know life's life's mistakes aren't life sentences they're life lessons you know if i make a mistake i should not be punished for it it should be you know you made a mistake have you learned from it move on there are shed loads of mistakes that cost money that i made and i, I never blame myself for them they were just mm, learned a little bit there don't trust everybody make sure things are in writing check your contracts um, so I think, I think in the modern world, university, school, university, business school, graduate training programs, away you go, uh, is too much of a straight line. There needs to be uh, more apprentices in all businesses, 16, 17, 18 year olds joining businesses that are being nurtured by older wiser heads that know what it's like to be in their position i mean kev smith nurtures young people really well because he knows what it's like to be a fish out of water for a while a 
couldn't agree more with you, Ian, in terms of that, you know, the, the jungle gym or the snakes and ladders. And do you, do you think it's a sort of unwillingness of leaders to talk about failure? And it's interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you, you know, reflecting not necessarily failure, but one of the big what in your career have been some of the biggest challenges, perhaps when when things haven't gone right, because I think you know, we always, we talk about success. We're driven as a culture and a society to talk about our successes, but we perhaps don't share our learnings as much from the things that went wrong. So what could you share there? Oh, well, business is very precarious. You, you know, you can go under at any time. Life is, um, yeah, life as a business person is, is very, very difficult. Uh, um, being honest with people when times are tough is is critical. So 2008, so the, the two key ones, 2008 and COVID, let's just deal with those two. 2008, I remember standing in front of all the staff uh, with tears. I mean, you know, just, just with tears and going, right, I've made a mistake. I employed someone who wasn't very good. The business is in a bad way. Two financial crises happened it's going to get tougher. So spoke to the accountant, we need to make uh, 10 people redundant or we all take a 20% pay cut and we only have until Friday to decide. And you guys choose what you want to do. And staff all came around to the right way of thinking. All they wanted was someone they could trust that had a plan. And they all came around, everybody took a pay cut I didn't get paid for that period of time. And within nine months, we were back on track again. And everybody was being repaid the pay cut that they took. And that was really, that really was insightful for me that staff know what's going on in a business. You don't kid yourself, they don't know. They know exactly what's happening in a business, who's, who's lazy, who's working hard. And the, the analogy I always take is sports teams. I coached junior sports teams for years. The boys, it was boys predominantly, the boys know who the better players are. And they know whether they're taking a better player's place because they're getting a bit of favoritism. And if you're not honest with them, that really hurts. They want to have the truth told to them. Um, because then they trust you. They trust you when you tell them they will be good enough. So that was uh, 2008 for the business, tears in your eyes, telling people they had to have a pay cut, and then COVID came along. So March last year, where were we going March last year? Nobody knew. What do you do? You can't just say, hey, we'll just carry on as normal. So you have to take some hard decisions, and exactly the same we did then. We, we looked at uh, all the business and decided we need to put some people on furlough. We didn't need to make anybody redundant. We needed to all take a pay cut for a period of time. And then we could see where we would be six months from there. And of course, six months later, we're winning new business. Everything was still, still going. It was still good. So everybody got their money back and we carried on. But we had to make hard decisions and be truthful with people. Not trying to when I blow smoke up their ass and tell them everything was going to be fine and don't worry. Because everybody knows, you know, I think everybody was in a state of, well, what next? So um, life lessons on, on those things, what really 
you need your staff. You need to be truthful to your staff. And when you really are up against it, you have to be a leader with a plan and people will follow you. It's very brave, Ian, because, um, you know, just back to your 2008 scenario, I can think of, you know, 99 out of 100 organisations would, uh, small exclusive room of people at the top would make the decision and then dictate it down. It mm. would have been easier to do that, perhaps. But, you know, the brave decision was, and I'm a big believer in the wisdom of crowds, right? You're right. You do need somebody mm. that plots the, the path and are kind of akin to going on a car journey. Someone needs to set the sat-nav. But they yeah. don't have to take the drive the whole way there. They don't need to put the fuel in the car, et cetera. And mm. what you, you've articulated really nicely there is, okay, we've, we've got to make a decision quickly. And paralysis, we know, can be a problem with, with businesses. Secondly, yep. rather than me on my own with one brain, why don't I put it to the team and say, look, as you say, be open and honest. There's options. And, and it didn't surprise me at all that that's what they went with. But mm. would have been, you know, if there was a parallel world, if, if a, a, a clone of Blue Sheep... Uh, dolly if you will was another yep. business that went the other way what would have happened to that business and i could I bet my bottom dollar where the money would go in terms of survival when you yeah. call people out of the business it's a hard thing to do and it unfortunately leaves people that think eek when's it going to yeah. be my turn well that's well that was that was really the mo more interesting part after all of that steve was uh, the bank manager you know so the bank manager came in uh, a year, like I say, a year later, and things were getting back on track, and we were moving forward. We'd we'd done all the numbers we said we would. We were forecasting and and doing well. And the bank manager said, "I'm surprised you didn't give up." And I just looked at him and I said, "You obviously have never been self-employed. There is no giving up. There, if you believe in what you've got, there is just get up again and go again. There is never." giving up and that's the difference between success and failure uh, 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 at that level if you believe what you've got is right is a success never knows when to stop getting up and giving it another go and, and that's interesting isn't it because i think that's come out of this probably more the states than it has perhaps in the past here that yeah. actually you've almost got to fail twice at creating a business before you get it right in the third iteration and you know it's talked about there and it's seen almost as a badge of honor whereas a, you know I don't know whether it's part of our our British psyche or European psyche even that that actually know you're supposed to get it right first time and as, as you're yeah. saying you know that's that's not always the case here and I think uh, you know that it's really interesting your, your sort of reflection of bringing staff with you and I think the fact you've mentioned you're passionate about you know, apprentices, and it's something that, that David Gilbertson, who we also chatted to on an earlier um, podcast, said, mm. promote from within, which you've clearly done and built, oh. a, you know, really successful business. But Absolutely. why do you think other businesses don't do that? Why do they insist on going, like, you know, for, for Blue Venn, when you were pivoting into becoming more of a technology on top of already amazing data business, why didn't you just go and hire the best data scientist that there was? Or did you? Did you do that as well? No, no. Um, and we did have long discussions about this because it was, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not easier because uh, it's never easy to, to hire people. You know, you can make as many mistakes uh, hiring new people in. But the, 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 the point about new people coming in, if you are in a data business and, and, and any business, but data business is particularly at the time is nobody knows what it looks like. 
Therefore, the people you're hiring in have no better idea of what it looks like than you do. And the people inside the business have a better idea of how it works because they've been working on it from scratch, how you put data together, how your matching algorithms work, how you, your technology works. Therefore, promote people and train people within gives you the edge because they know how things happen. People coming from outside want to make a difference. Therefore, they start to interfere with how you do things. Uh, and, and some of it rightly, some of it absolutely rightly, but most of it is, oh, well, I've been hired in to do something. I'm going to make some decisions. And those decisions are not always, uh, and I would say probably majority of times, uh, in the best interest of the company going forward. I find that there is a grating that creates um, tension inside the company, creates uh, problems with uh, technology, uh, grates against itself. Yeah, so I've, I've always been hesitant about hiring big hitters or uh, people like nature, because what they bring is a different culture, a different place. And if you don't need a different culture or a different place, you end up with uh, too many tensions inside the company. So I'm a promote within always. It's, it's a bit like your sports team analogy, Ian, isn't it? Is that, you know, uh, you've talked uh, kids club sport, but if we, if we go up to the kind of something like the Premier League in, in, in football, hmm. how many times does the, the, the highly rated international player come into a team and it just doesn't work it doesn't gel they come with a price tag and a credibility but they they're not cohesive to the the current way of playing or in, in the case of what we're talking about the way of doing business that's it's a real fantastic gamble. analogy yeah fantastic analogy steve you're absolutely right and it, it does happen so often and then one player could come in and create a pivotal point of difference i mean you know eric Cantona arrived at united and you know uh, hats off to uh, to him as a as a reprobate, a rebel, as a as a menace, and was striding the middle of the field. Fabulous! Yeah, that was a great example because it more than just changed a club, changed a way of playing football, and, and a lot more yeah. besides. But yeah. that for every Eric Cantona, I guess what you're saying is, you know, there's an awful lot that may not fit that gets that, shipped that out. Fit. Yeah, and that was and that was a bit that you know we talked about it. So. Uh, success, you know, what was the secret of success is hiring better people. Okay, so I always wanted to find people that were better than me. And I wanted to give away work to people that were better than me at doing it. Okay, so, you know, Steve Klin joining when he came, came to Blue Sheep. He was, he's a monster salesperson. And he, he's really good at, you know, selling and herding cats and, and driven by those things. Me, I was less, I was a bit lethargical. You know, if, you, if you like it, buy it. And if you don't, hey, it's no skin off my nose. But he was much more driven and focused. And you know, he was a great hire. That was a, a pivotal person to employ. Really, really, he was a, a step change in the business because we had a business that had, so it, I, I, I view it like we built the bus, but we haven't got a real, you know, V12 engine in it. We've got still the four cylinder. We've got the bus, but we've not got the right engine. And the sales engine was required to be upped and Steve was the right person to put into there. So hiring better people than you, although I could do selling uh, um, and enjoy it, somebody had more of a passion than I did for it. And I've always thought that hiring better people, or giving away work to better people 
is important. And I really like that. I think, you know, people, I've always tried to say when people say, you know, what's your piece of career advice is, oh, just find something you love doing and that you're passionate about, because then it's not work, mm. you know. And I, and I think that that's, again, it's something, it's really interesting. And maybe particularly, you know, when you talk to apprentices, it's very hard to know what you've got a passion for if you've not yet discovered it. You discovered yours early in terms of, you know, wanting to have your own business. And that's where you passionately. It was the whole thing. Mm. But, you know, unlocking that that passion, if you like, um, within your teams, Ian, is, you know, I think really interesting. How do you how do you go about you know, lighting that flame. It's obvious with some people we've recruited, they've got it. But if you, you know, if you've seen people that you've had to move perhaps two or three times to get them to find that bit of passion, has that happened as well? Um, Let me just think of people, individual people as we go through. I, I wouldn't say having to move them um, but giving them more than one bite of the cherry always prepared to give people more than one bite of the cherry so I, I, I liken it to let's go back to my bank manager analogy of why didn't you give up and I, and I used to sit down and think about it really hard because it's a struggle to get a business to grow and it's certainly a struggle to get it to be of any significant size um, so you've got to look at the business and say, right, am I, is the business I'm in, what we do, in demand in the marketplace? And data, as far as I can remember, was always in the top 10 economic forecast groups to be in. It was always getting uh, a higher ranking than, than most of the businesses as a likely sector to grow. So I'm in a growth market. You know, have we got some you know, good customers yeah, well, we've got really good brands that are buying from us and we've got some great technology that people want. I mean, Experian tried to buy us, I'm going to say 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, so we've got some good technology. So we're not making it work right. So it's not the market, it's not your technology and it's not your customers. So it's the management of a business that's wrong. Because the other things are fine. It's just the management of the business. So what you have to do is you have to break things down and find out what is is wrong and i think that's with people's exactly the same if you've got somebody who's got the right um headset for data um they're interested in the detail because the devil's always in the detail that they can spot things easily but they're struggling to get their heads around the value proposition or why it's important or or things of that nature that's an education process that's not to do with them that's helping them lift the um, narrow view of the world that they get from school. You know, why is it valuable that you do certain things? You know, why, why am I passionate about data? Uh, and why am I against things like a DNA database? You know, why am I against a DNA database? Because um, I know databases can be wrong. And when databases are wrong, those consequences um, can be catastrophic for people but they could be critical for people if a dna database is wrong you know you could be in jail for 30 years if it's wrong so if you get people to understand the consequences of errors to understand the why 
the client is buying from us or why the client is paying a, a lot of money for services, then they start to pay more attention. That gives them the passion of understanding why, the why question. Never give up on the why question. We beat it out of children far too early. Why is the most difficult question to ever answer? And we should carry on asking it all the time. You know, Simon Sinek, you know, start with why. It's just so important to start with why. It, it's something it, it, I can completely relate to that, Ian, in my, with my teaching hat on. It's something I always say is we, we kind of life literally, as you say, beats it out. It's a brilliant question set, unless you're a parent of a two and a half year old. And it's incredibly yeah. grating for a period of time. But we lose that. Uh, and I, in fact, I've always strived in, in a sentence to 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 find an inquisitiveness. That's what we're looking for is not mm. not why for the sake of why, but why not actually as well yeah. is really important. Absolutely. And I, I wonder if I'd, I'd turn that question on to you in terms of why or when. You're obviously, as we'll come on to before we finish today, you, you've exited, you've sold to Upland. And I'd be interested to talk about that, the, that you built something that you're then almost giving your baby away. That must be really hard in itself. But was there a time, was there a why or a when that you said, hmm, hold on a minute. This, the time's right, there's, there's more that I want to do or there's more of a life balance. Were there trigger moments that led up to, to ultimately the, the exit and the sale? Well, there's a, there's a number of, of uh, moments in that long journey, 35 years. So you start off with something, you're made redundant and you go, yeah, I think I could do that. So the first objective is is to create a business that pays the mortgage because you know you've got bills to pay that's what you want to do is you want to pay you want to pay your bills so the first five or ten years were could I make it something that would pay the bills and then children came along or oh, will it pay the school fees uh, you know, so you grow from there and, and 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 then the next stage was really well where's the value in the business if John John White was a partner at the time and he was coming to retirement and um, we bought John out and it was like, what would you want from the business? Well, it's got to give us a pension. It's got to give us something that has some value. So rather than being a pay the mortgage, it's got to be, you know, create a value. It's got to have value. Um, and it's not a, uh, you know, so you go from lifestyle to growing revenue streams for value. Um, uh, and as we went through that process, you, you grow the business, you get it to 5 million, you get it to, you know, towards 10 million. Um, and then you start to think about, well, who's going to buy the business and why they're going to buy the business? Um, and what are they buying? Um, so that was the, that was the path we were on uh, when Steve joined, Steve Plin joined, and then Neil Thomas. The path was, how do we convert it from a services business uh, into a technology business and how do we create value in that business? Uh, and that was the trajectory we were on. Um, and, and then, you know, for, for, for me personally, and I'm, I'm 10 years their senior, uh, still fit and healthy, uh, but I go on holiday to um, China to see my daughter graduate from Beijing University. Uh, she was doing a teaching degree over there and she came out, wanted to go to Tibet to have a look at uh, Tibet. So we went and we thought we'd go to um, base camp, Tibetan side. If you're that close, why wouldn't you? It's one of those moments. Um, but in that process, I unfortunately, or 
uh, um, got severe altitude sickness. Um, and it was really scary for, for my wife, not so much for me, because I was in quite a bit of a stupor um, where I was staggering around to a point my wife thought I had a stroke. Um, um, and my poor old daughter had to take me to a, a military hospital because there's no real other hospitals in Tibet or Lhasa. And she speaks fluent Mandarin. So we were fine when we got to the hospital and got to sort it out. And they tried to help me, but um, nobody put it down to altitude sickness. And I was having a, a cerebral edema, which is fundamentally a brain swell, which puts me on to your brain is demanding oxygen and is shutting your body down. And if we'd been there for any longer, there's, there's a part chance that, you know, my brain would have told my heart to stop beating. Um, but fortunately, we, we managed to get us out, got some cash out of a cash point machine, um, bought us tickets in cash to get back to Beijing um, and, and, and get out. But it was probably three months before, maybe a bit longer before I was back to normal, back to not being so um, dull. In, in thought process. And at that point, it was like, well, we've got to sell. We've got to get out. And that was a pivotal moment. It was, you know, not that life's too short. That was, that was wrong. It was that I'm fit and healthy, and suddenly I'm not fit and healthy. And I need to, I need to move on from work. I've got Steve and Neil able to run the business. Everybody's in the business. The business is now ripe for um, exiting me or everybody. And at that point, we, I came back and we decided, the, the, the three of us, Steve, Neil, well, four of us, and Mark Jameson and I, decided at that point we should seek um, to see whether the, the business had any value. And we employed a corporate financial advisor to come along who said, you've got a very valuable business here. People will pay a lot of money for it. Um, uh, and that's and I think that in... That's really interesting because I think what you've just shared there, there there's so many insights, not least, thank goodness you're, you know, you are fit and well, but you, the realization that if you want to be in control, then you do need to do it when you're able to. And I think that, you know, for those of us who've who've been in similar situations is, yeah, that you, it's far better to do it when you can do it and make that choice. But I think also sharing the fact that you didn't start, you know, where many, I think, do. Perhaps you were talking about, you know, the young generation think they're going to found a business and they're going to sell it, you know, in five years for lots and lots of money. Some of them do it, which is amazing. But yeah. actually, that wasn't your path. It was a path, as you said, it was a, you know, a business that started as um, a lifestyle, a service business. But then you transitioned. And I think that, that those words of wisdom that, you know, where you start is not where you end up. And you have choices and you obviously have made, you know, some great choices along the way. Mm. Um, really, you, I, you, you have to make them, don't you? You do. And, and, and you have to make them consciously. So, you know, the, the first decision was, you know, paying a mortgage because that was all. I mean, Helen, Helen was, a, uh, was a lawyer and she had a good job. Um, so when we got married, we were double income, no kids. We had that dinky, uh, yuppie moment. We, were, we had a great lifestyle. Um, and then the kids come along, so I need to earn more money, so it becomes more. And you, your your life develops, and the business has to develop with you. And, and people say, if I was talking to uh, a class now about starting a business, um, the word of advice I give them, and I give them all the time, is not try to find something that you can expand and make into, you know, the next Facebook. 
uh, because they are rarities. You know, most people, um, rather than getting a job, is how do you earn a living, is finding something that other people need doing and are prepared to pay for. Those are the key things, because if you can do that, you can get started. And once you get started, you can go in any direction you like. It's getting started that's the hard point. People don't know how to start. Yeah, it's the first step, isn't it? Although it, it yeah. makes it, you make an interesting point there, Ian, but that, uh, as you said that twice now, is that you, you know, you've got to know what the market wants. But, yeah. but equally, back to the, to the point about starting a business and selling a business, and this was mm. such a realisation for me a number of years ago, a throwaway piece of advice from somebody is, Steve, you won't sell a business. Nobody sells a business. They only get bought. And of course, you can build up a business to be anything. But if the, again, the same point, if the market that's there to buy businesses doesn't see you as a good fit or a strategic fit or whatever it might be, you'll never sell the business. It's all exactly. about understanding that you need to be bought rather than to sell, which, as I say, sounds very self-evident, but can easily be missed when people are down to the, to the grindstone following a business plan, a three-year or five-year plan. And, and oops, we've not sold. We're not, we're not right for that market either. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right, Steve. I mean, I used to say to people, I don't sell to people. I create a desire in them to buy. You know, my, my, my sales technique is not trying to sell people things. It's trying to create a desire in them to buy. Because if you can do that, then price is no longer the issue. Uh, and that's the same when, when you come to sell your business. If you're trying to sell it, you know, you can go around trying to look for the one person out there who might want to, uh, you, you can sell it to. But if you create a desire to buy, there might be four or five people that want to buy you. Uh, and that's what we were trying to do. So when we acquired Blue Van, at that point, it was, right, how do we create this into a annual recurring revenue technology business that a larger technology business would want to buy? because it meets their needs of aggregating data together, which we knew from our own experience is tough as hell to do. It's really difficult. So therefore other people would be finding it difficult as well. So choose a difficult market, choose a growing market. Great <laughs> tips. Love it, Ian. What I want to know next is, is what are you looking forward to next? Well, so, um, uh, my wife and I, so my wife, my wife is, uh, so there we go. My wife is high sheriff of Gloucestershire this year. So, um, you know, she is the queen's legal representative in the county. So today's a poignant day with, uh, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh passing away. Um, but she's sort of has a role which carries on for another month or two. And at the end of that, we want to continue our walking around the coast of Britain for three months. So my wife and I have a, a desire to walk around the whole of Britain, the coastline of Britain. And we've, we've done you know, 600 out of the 6,000 miles, um, but we want to carry on and spend a month or two doing it. So we can like rain or win, end up by repositioning our lives based on our experiences of not necessarily hardship because obviously I've got money in the bank and I haven't got their level of hardship but that stress and strain of everyday living that clears the head I'm no longer thinking about business so I can think about other things that might be worth doing and I believe that that's likely to be around uh, mentoring 
disadvantaged children, and I mean seriously disadvantaged children, um, people who have significant uh, adverse childhood experiences in their lives. Um, and I think I could be quite good at that. I might not be, but guess well, what? They'll tell me very quickly. Yeah, but if you follow your own advice, Ian, follow your heart. It sounds like it. Never give up and be honest. Yeah. Have integrity and trust. I think uh, you're pretty bloody well placed to be able to do a, a stellar job at it for sure. But maybe we can ask you back when we get to series four or five. By then, you'll have yeah. hopefully we might find you somewhere on a headland, uh, or indeed knee deep helping out these people that I'm sure could learn an awful lot from you, as as Shane and I have today. Um, yeah. Well, well one final question, if I may, just be mm. unconscious of your time and and you've been very giving. But is there, as you, as we said, the, the the podcast is what we've learned. Is there one piece of advice? And, and we asked you about your your back in uh, 28, 29 year old self, but for anyone that might be listening in that has inspired them or, or continue to make them think this is the right thing for me to do. Is there one thing you've learned that actually is, is universal that will, will help anybody that might be listening in when it comes to, to running or, or starting a successful business? Oh, there's a number of things there. And I was writing some things down and, and I've got a few on the piece of paper uh, and, and never give up is, the first one, because I think, I think um, people are easily dissuaded from following uh, a path because they have a, a fear or have some lack of success. So, you know, Dyson never gave up, even though he's rejected many times. So it's a never give up would be uh, my first one, because getting something started requires you to take many, many journeys to the start line before you get over it. Um, and the second would really be always surround yourself with better people, people that are better than you at things. Give them things to do and only focus on what you're best at, where your personal um, uniqueness lies uh, um, mine is more enthusiasm um, I'm very enthusiastic about things so delegate everything that isn't your speciality get better people to do it um, those would be my two two key things two fabulous takeaways to finish on that's just mm -hmm. splendid Ian and, and because you. of that obviously clearly you're not going to give up and you're going to walk that entire coastland oh and we're definitely going to do that um definitely because it's well, just beautiful and, Shane, and if, you, if honor, you've ever been lap of honor Ian I imagine knowing you it's not going to be once will be enough that will be a pb you can go and do it a second time <laughs> <laughs> well that's it's other walks to be done. You know, there's, there's, there's the uh, uh, Andes, across the Andes, the Appalachian Trails. There's all sorts of places. And walking is just so, so mindful. Well, Steve, it's always a great pleasure to hear from somebody quite so entrepreneurial. And I think Ian really showed that in spades as um, also very much a people person. But what did you take away from our chat with Ian today? Oh, so much, Shane. I mean, I, I could listen to Ian talk for a long time. It's obviously tons and tons of knowledge, but coupled with passion and also a really clear emotional intelligence, as you said, you, we talked about leadership as 
and pioneers, but you need somebody who recognizes you need a team around you. I have to say, I was incredibly impressed that just the ability to rattle off the names of people that he saw as really important people. And when they came into his business, um, and he made that point really well, that you can overlook talent if you're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong way. You can you can teach people things, but you need the right kind of person that wants to be taught. So I think some really good lessons around recruitment and hiring good people or great people around you. Uh, and they may not come from the obvious places. Yeah, the power of the, the team and also the he mentioned the power of asking why. I'm a great fan of that one. Mm. And for those of us who are sort of, you know, challenged perhaps at the moment thinking about, you know, where the opportunities are coming from, pick a market. It's always easier to grow in a growth market. I loved that one. Yeah. And, and you, as you said, you know, entrepreneur, and it's not a light word. I know you wouldn't use it lightly either, but he really genuinely is that. Um, and I thought the story around, you know, 28, 29 years old, necessity, I need to earn money. And, and that evolving over many, many years to, to change the position and the why of what the organization stood for for him and those around him. It was a really lovely story. I'm sure our listeners are going to have taken away lots more as well. And and be great to get some feedback. You can do that on uh, the LinkedIn post, uh, but also, Steve, share where people can listen to more episodes. Yeah, indeed. So www.podcast.co.uk, that will route you through to LinkedIn, where you'll find all of our episodes, uh, even some videos of Shane and I. If you've ever wondered, what on earth do these people look like? Well, you can find those there. You'll also find future episodes. If you can't go there, then Spotify, Apple Tunes, wherever you get your music from, you'll find us in the podcast aisle. Um, so please go through. As this is series three, there's a number of different episodes, not just in this series, but in series one and two over the last year or so that you may find of interest. Uh, and indeed, if you want to subscribe to make your life easier on one of those services, hit the subscribe button and we just arrive every week into your podcast area. So massive thank you to Ian Lovett. A big thank you to Shane as ever. And indeed, thank you to you. It would just be Shane and I rattling on without you as a listener. So we appreciate you tuning in and we hope to hear from you soon.